New York's governor toughened gun laws in a bill signing. Tennessee's governor is focusing on hardening schools. The efforts show the direction states are moving on gun regulation and safety. It's Monday, June 6th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Also this hour, Russia's military is leading the invasion of Ukraine, but among the forces aiding the invasion are private mercenaries employed by a group financed by a Russian oligarch. Well, you have to understand that the person who is part of this group exists in this legal vacuum. A former mercenary tells his story. And scientists have recorded a song coming from a volcano. They think the musical notes might someday be useful for predicting when a dangerous eruption might occur. It's 401. Now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Nearly a dozen new gun laws are taking effect in New York, one of the first states to pass stricter measures following the recent series of deadly mass shootings in Buffalo and across the country. One law bans anyone under 21 from buying semi-automatic rifles. The gunman who massacred 10 people in a racist attack at a top supermarket last month is 18. So was the gunman who killed 19 children and two teachers at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, less than two weeks later. As the administration calls for greater accountability, the Justice Department is appealing the $230 million award to victims of the 2017 Sutherland Springs mass shooting. Texas Public Radio's Paul Flav has details. A federal judge in San Antonio found earlier this year that the Air Force was responsible for the shooting which claimed the lives of 26 and injured nearly two dozen others because it didn't forward the shooter's military criminal history to the FBI. The shooter, former Airman Devin Kelly, should have been barred from purchasing the assault rifle he used in the killings. Victims lawyer Jamal Al-Safar says the Biden administration's comments on gun safety and reform chiding lawmakers for not holding gun makers accountable after the Uvalde shooting contradict today's court filing. It's absolutely hypocritical. It doesn't make sense. And the only explanation is the federal government just doesn't want to take accountability for what they did wrong. The case will now go to the conservative Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. I'm Paul Flav in San Antonio. The Justice Department has charged Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio, as well as four other senior members of the right-wing extremist group with seditious conspiracy over their involvement with the pro-Trump insurrection at the U.S. Capitol last year. A leader of another extremist group, Stuart Rhodes, head of the Oath Keepers, has also been charged. The U.S. is preparing to host the Summit of the Americas, which begins Wednesday in Los Angeles, but one key player, the president of Mexico, won't be there. NPR's Kerry Khan reports President Andres Manuel López Obrador is boycotting the major gathering because the Biden administration did not invite all Latin American countries. President Andres Manuel López Obrador had warned he would boycott the summit if the U.S. didn't include Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela. At his morning press conference, he decried U.S. policy, including the decades-long economic embargo against Cuba, which he says is, quote, a tremendous violation of human rights and a type of genocide. The Biden administration had said countries who do not adhere to democratic values, such as Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, would not be invited. They, however, waited until the last minute to release a final list in hopes of appeasing López Obrador and other leaders who threatened to snub the summit. López Obrador says he will travel in July to Washington to meet with President Biden, who he says he respects very much. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Los Angeles. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. 
Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and Massachusetts Commissioner of Elementary and Secondary Education Jeff Riley have very different ideas about the best path forward for Boston public schools. As WBUR's Chris Siderick reports, there are plenty of questions left unanswered. Mayor Wu and Commissioner Riley have yet to agree on a number of specific deadlines and even how the reform should be structured. Wu favors a partnership with the state. Riley is pushing for more personal accountability from the mayor. We're still in talks. I know our teams met, I believe, on Friday and had a very productive conversation. Beyond the overall approach to the reform, the big question is whether the district will be put under state receivership. Mayor Wu says that would be unacceptable. We need a long-term, sustainable vision for the Boston Public Schools that comes from the Boston Public Schools. Part of that vision includes selecting a new superintendent. Mayor Wu says the second round of interviews for that job will start tomorrow. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Chris Siderick. The Boston Latin School has a new leader. Jason Gallagher was named the next head of the prestigious exam school today. He has been principal of the Harvard-Kent Elementary School in Charlestown for the past 11 years. Gallagher is also a 1991 graduate of Boston Latin School. He'll replace Rachel Skerritt, who is stepping down at the end of the current school year. Gallagher officially takes over on July 1st. The Suffolk County District Attorney hopes a new internal unit will strengthen ties between the office and the people it serves. Interim DA Kevin Hayden says two local advocates will lead the Community Engagement and Strategic Partnerships Unit. Its major goals will be intervening to prevent crime and provide support for people reentering society after being incarcerated. The stepmother of the little girl who has not been seen since 2019 waived her arraignment on perjury charges today and had bail set at $5,000. Manchester police arrested Kayla Montgomery on Friday. She's been charged with lying to a grand jury investigating whether she committed fraud by getting food stamps for Harmony Montgomery even though the child was not living with her. Kayla Montgomery has not been charged with Harmony's disappearance. In sports, the Red Sox are in Anaheim tonight to take on the L.A. Angels. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, low around 57, mostly sunny and warm tomorrow, the highs around 78. Mostly cloudy on Wednesday, chance of showers or thunderstorms, the highs will be near 74. Mostly cloudy again on Thursday, showers likely early on, the highs around 75. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston, this is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Two governors in New York and Tennessee signed measures today responding to gun violence in schools and other mass shootings. The measures, though, are starkly different. They reveal how, in the absence of congressional action, states are moving in different directions on gun safety. NPR's Brian Mann joins me. Hey, Brian. Hey, Mayor Louis. Um, start us off in New York, where Governor Kathy Hochul signed 10 different measures toughening gun laws. What are they? What'd she say? Yeah, so New York is still reeling from the deadly racist violence in Buffalo, where a gunman last month used an AR-15-style rifle to kill 10 grocery shoppers, most of them black residents. So speaking this morning, Hochul said after Buffalo and after the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, it would be morally wrong to do nothing. It just keeps happening. Shots ring out, flags come down, and nothing ever changes, except here in New York. In New York, 
New York, of course, already had some of the toughest gun laws in the country, Mary Louise. Mm -hmm. Among other things, now these new laws will raise the age to buy an AR-15 style firearm from 18 to 21. It'll ban the sale of body armor to most individuals. And New York's going to ban large magazines, you know, clips of bullets that allow shooters to fire more rounds before reloading. Okay, let's compare that to what's happening in Tennessee, uh, where their governor, Bill Lee, is also signing things. He signed an executive order on school safety. Yeah, what's not in the Tennessee measure is any mention of gun control or firearm regulation. So it's a really different approach from New York. Uh, Tennessee's executive order focuses instead on this idea of hardening schools, which is a popular concept in many Republican-controlled states. Now Tennessee agencies will be ordered to give schools more guidance on how to boost school security, also encouraging parents to get more active advocating for safe schools and reporting danger. In a statement today, Governor Lee said his administration is doing its best to protect kids, but he didn't address questions about whether these kinds of measures will actually work. In, in Uvalde, remember, school police were on the scene but were not effective protecting the students and teachers who were killed. Um, and we said uh, when I introduced you, this is all happening at the state level in the absence of anything happening at the federal level. Has Congress made any progress, any recent moves on gun violence legislation? Well, what we can say is that talks are continuing, led by Republican Senator John Cornyn from Texas and Democratic Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut. Both of their states, of course, scarred horribly by mass shootings at schools. In the past, these kinds of talks have sort of petered out without any new significant action. Always lots of worry and concern after these shootings, but not much in the way of results. And that's largely because of opposition from the GOP side to any significant gun control measures uh, that appears fierce and unbudging. All right. I'll circle us back to New York, where there's a Republican facing a backlash for supporting new gun regulations. And again, this is in a state where gun control is is broadly popular. Right. Representative Chris Jacobs, a Republican who represents a district out near Buffalo, came out in favor of new restrictions. Uh, but then he faced this huge backlash. Here's what he said. I made remarks uh, before the press regarding my support of, of some gun control measures. Since that time, every Republican elected official that endorsed me withdrew their endorsement. Additionally, the Republican and conservative parties have now been circulating petitions to launch primaries against me. So facing those headwinds, Jacobs won't run again. This shows how politically dangerous it is, Mary Louise, for Republicans to back almost any gun control measures. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. And Pierre's Brian Mann. And now a look inside the Wagner Group. This private mercenary firm is financed by an oligarch with close ties to Vladimir Putin, although the Russian president has consistently denied any knowledge of the organization. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley sat down with a former Wagner mercenary to learn about the group's activities. Hello, Marat. Hello. Spasiba. 56-year-old Marat Gabidulin's face is lined from exposure to the elements and his hair is thinning, but he has the trim physique and muscular arms of a man 30 years younger. He wears a chunky ring with a skull, the symbol of Wagner. Born in central Russia, Gabidulin served 10 years as an officer in the Soviet army before being laid off. In 2015, he found himself unemployed and at a low point in his life. I was depressed, he says, and a friend told me about this private military company that I could qualify for because of my military background. Gabidulin joined Wagner which came to the world's attention in 2014 when it fought with separatists in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. Today, Wagner's clients range from the junta governing Mali to Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Gabi Doolin served three years in Syria. 
In Syria, one goal was to quickly achieve the victory, but the second goal that was as important uh, to hide the number of losses that Russian military had in that campaign, because we wanted to create an image of a strong Russian military that achieved victory at a small cost. It was all deception, he says, because the cost was huge, but the public will never know the real numbers. Kevin Limonier is a Wagner specialist who teaches geopolitics at the University of Paris 8. Wagner is not a group, it's a brand. In fact, it does not exist as an official structure. Wagner is financed by Yevgeny Prigozhin, the same oligarch wanted by the FBI for interfering in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Yevgeny Prigozhin has an empire based on three types of activities. First type of activities is, of course, mercenary and security business. Second type is disinformation business, information warfare, etc. The third is the exploitation of natural resources in Africa. Selon nos informations, 2000 mercenaires russes. A recent documentary about Wagner that aired on Network France 2 shows how these three activities intersect to prop up corrupt regimes, terrorize local populations, and spin lies. Limonier says Wagner is different from private military companies like the notorious Blackwater, now disbanded, because it doesn't have any official existence. It's a galaxy of organizations with different names that are hard to trace, he says and it thrives in a violent post-Soviet society. Wagner is organized by people who grew up in a society where violence and death has not the same value that it has in our Western societies. Limonier says Wagner's earnings have grown tremendously in recent years because of its operations in Africa, allowing it to recruit young men from remote Russian regions with rap songs and ultra-violent internet movies and videos glorifying war, which allows it to build a cheap and disposable force. Mercenary Gabi Doolin says no one is responsible for a Wagner soldier and there is no code of conduct in a Wagner war. Well, you have to understand that a person who is part of this group exists in this legal vacuum. On the other hand, that soldier is also relieved of any possible consequences of his behavior at war. Gabi Doolin has just published his book in France, I, Marat, ex-commander in the Wagner army. He says he wrote it to show the Russian people the truth and the propaganda behind their wars. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. Scientists have recorded a song made by a volcano. NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports that the tune could tell them more about when an eruption might take a violent turn. There's a big volcano in Hawaii called Kilauea. In 2008, there started an eruptive episode where there was an active lava lake at the summit. That's Leif Karlstrom, a professor of volcanology at the University of Oregon. As the volcano's crater filled with lava, rocks from the wall began falling into it. These are big rock falls, like bus-sized. These giant boulders would plunge into the lava lake several times a week for the next 10 years, and scientists were listening to the splashes they made as they fell. 
This audio recording is what your ears would have heard, but researchers also used seismographs placed around the crater to record low-frequency vibrations. And when Karlstrom and graduate student Josh Crozier sped up those recordings, it made music. What you're listening to here you know, might sound like, a, like an old field recording of a marimba. Now that's pretty cool, but what's even cooler is that the song actually reveals something important about the makeup of the molten rock deep inside the volcano. Karlstrup says the notes of the song depend on how many bubbles of gas are in the liquid rock. The speed of sound of a bubbly mixture is actually very significantly different. You could hear this for yourself in your kitchen with a spoon and a couple of glasses. All right, so I've filled these two glasses to exactly the same level. They have the same amount of water in them, but one of them is still, and the other one is sparkling. So the amount of bubbles in the drink changes the way it sounds. The sounds at Kilauea matter to volcano scientists because they care a lot about bubbles. Bubbles are the primary driver of volcanic eruptions, uh, generally, actually. He hopes the volcano song could be used as a bubble detector to help predict when an eruption has the potential to turn even more violent. There's quite a bit of effort right now in the volcanologic community to develop techniques that might allow us to peer into the plumbing system. Um, while the event is occurring or, or before it happens so that we can forecast hazards, for example. Karlstrom's work appears in the journal Science Advances. He says this trick may not work all the time. Not every volcano makes music. But Kilauea's song is worth a listen. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. About half a century ago, three of every four members of Congress had served in the U.S. military. Now it's about one in six. Listen tomorrow afternoon to hear how a new and diverse generation of Republican veterans is trying to change that. Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org, 77 degrees in Boston at 418. Ahead on All Things Considered, in colonial America, abortion would have been considered a fairly common practice. But in the mid-1800s, a small group of physicians set out to change that. We'll have that story ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Mass Art Art Museum, Boston's only free contemporary art museum, designing motherhood on view starting Saturday. maam.massart.edu. In business news, the bidding war to buy Spirit Airlines is taking off. JetBlue, which has a, metro, a major hub at Logan Airport, is again increasing its offer for the discount airline. JetBlue says it will provide a $350 million payment to Spirit if the deal is not completed for antitrust reasons. That's $150 million more than previously offered. Frontier Airlines is also trying to buy Spirit. Wall Street stocks closed slightly higher today. The Dow was up 16 points to close at 32,916. NASDAQ was up four-tenths of a percent to 49 points to 12,061. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Red's Best, with local home delivery and pickup at the Boston Fish Pier. Direct access to fish, shellfish, and sushi from networked fishermen, redsbest.com. 
and Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. The forecast, partly cloudy tonight, lows around 57, mostly sunny, warm tomorrow. The highs will be around 78 degrees. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. In U.S. history, abortion wasn't always controversial. In fact, in colonial America, it was considered a fairly common practice, a private decision made by women and aided mostly by midwives. But in the mid-1800s, a small group of physicians set out to change that. Led by a zealous young doctor named Horatio Storer, they launched a campaign to make abortion illegal in every state. Host Ramtin Arablouei and Rund, Rund Abdel Fattah from our history podcast, Throughline, bring us this story. In 1860, Governors of every single state in the U.S. received this letter from the recently established American Medical Association. The evil to society of this crime is evident from the fact that its instances in this country are now to be counted by hundreds of thousands. But there was really only one guy holding the pen. Horatio Storer. Carissa Haugeberg is an associate professor of history at Tulane University. She studied the formation of the anti-abortion movement. Basically, he ghost wrote a letter from the president of the AMA. So it looked like it was coming from the president, but Storer was actually the one who wrote it, saying that the AMA opposes abortion. And he used the language of morality. The letter was pivotal to what historians call the physician's crusade against abortion. And Storer was making a few key arguments for why abortion should be illegal across the country. First, he introduced a new idea the child is alive from the moment of conception. That life began at conception. Up till now, people generally agreed that life began when a woman could actually feel life move inside her, known then as quickening. But that wasn't enough for Storer. He campaigned on a moral argument that also tapped into the racial fears of the moment. Fears that would eventually inspire a pseudo-scientific field of, quote, racial improvement and planned breeding of the population, American eugenics. These racial fears would inspire forced sterilization programs to decrease certain populations, whereas Storer's anti-abortion campaign was trying to increase other populations by focusing on the birth rate for Protestant white women had been declining over the course of the 19th century. So he had fears of what, were commonly, what was commonly referred to as race suicide, that the Anglo stock wasn't going to replenish itself fast enough to keep up with the swells of new immigrants to the United States. And who is going to have power and populate this country and populate the Great Plains and the Great West? Leslie Regan is a professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Well. It is going to be Chinese migrants, it's going to be African-Americans, newly freed people, and Catholics. They are not the ones using abortion. 
it's our, <laughs> you know, Yankee women who are using abortion, trying to get into medical school, trying to do politics, and they should be at home having babies and taking care of them. Michelle Goodwin is a professor at the University of California, Irvine, in the areas of law and bioethics. They began to say, we need white women to use their loins because they're concerned about the blackening and the browning of what is now, what at that point became the United States. And this real concern that when black people become free, what will this mean for white people? And white women become a key to that. So part of Storr's thinking was that criminalizing abortion would help rebalance the scales of who was being born into this country. But there was more to this strategy. He saw this as a way to finally knock out the competition. Midwives. And so if the AMA could wrest control over the marketplace of abortion, it would it would be lucrative to this growing cadre of university-educated, mostly male um, physicians who are beginning to specialize in things like obstetrics and gynecology. So midwives were slandered in this campaign. Described as unsanitary, unclean, as unmoral. And as clueless as the mothers themselves. Saying women do not know. They don't know when they quicken. And really makes fun of women's own sensations and knowledges and says, you know, some of them quicken at one month, some of them never quicken at all, and then they have a baby. They may very constantly be recognized by the physician in cases where no sensation is felt by the mother. So there's this scoffing at women's knowledge, saying, this is a sin, this is murder, you're killing children. By the moral law, the willful killing of a human being at any stage of its existence is murder. And the general public and women don't get it. They don't know that. And we need to change the laws. So to help people get it, Storer wrote articles, books, reports, speeches, all to make his views on abortion and women clear. In one lecture called The Origins of Insanity in Women, he advocated for ovariectomies for women who, quote, have become habitually thievish, profane or obscene, despondent or self-indulgent, shrewish or fatuous. The solution, as he saw it, remove the cause. A woman's reproductive organs. He was really hostile to women. And that hostility was starting to gain traction. A few years into the campaign, some states began to pass laws outlawing or restricting abortion. Perhaps the harshest was in Connecticut in 1860. The law got rid of the quickening rule and made abortion a crime for which the abortionist and the woman getting the abortion could be fined and jailed. And over the next few decades, most states across the country would adopt similar laws, thanks in part to another campaign that was going on at the same time that was getting even more attention. It was led by a Union Army Civil War veteran named Anthony Comstock, who's well known for leading the anti-birth control crusade of the 19th century. Anthony Comstock was a descendant of some of the earliest Puritans in New England. He took that ancestry to heart and went on to work with the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA, in New York City, and founded the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. And he dedicated his life to exactly that, suppressing vice. In 1873, Comstock began lobbying Congress to pass anti-obscenity laws. 
There had been a rise of prostitution and new forms of birth control, like diaphragms and rubber condoms, all of which triggered a powerful backlash, a backlash that culminated in the Comstock Law. The law made it illegal to mail sex toys, pornography, contraception, abortion drugs, or even information about contraception and abortion. Including some medical books that had pictures of anatomy, right? It's just how deep it went. But here's the thing. Comstock conflated birth control with abortion. He saw no difference between the two, which meant that abortion was wrapped up into this new law, making it a federal offense to send or order material about abortion by mail, with punishment of up to $5,000 in fines, which is over $110,000 today, and up to 10 years in prison. The law was the first of its kind in the Western world. Between Comstock's laws and Horatio Storr's crusade, by 1880, every single state had a law outlawing abortion on the books. These laws launched a century of criminalization. That was Rund Abdel-Fattah and Ramtin Arablouei of NPR's Throughline podcast. The full episode is Before Roe, the Physician's Crusade. And this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 77 degrees in Boston. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll take a look at President Biden's actions to deal with gun violence. That's just ahead here on WBUR. Partly cloudy tonight. The lows will be around 57 degrees. Mostly sunny and warm tomorrow. The high around 78. Mostly cloudy on Wednesday. Chance of showers or thunderstorms. The highs will be near 74 degrees. Again, right now, it's 77 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. Merrimack Repertory Theater, presenting a toe-tapping, good-time musical, Woody Says, The Life and Music of Woody Guthrie, June 8th through 26th, mrt.org. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com. Admiral James DeVridis knows what it takes to make decisions in battle, and he says it's not that different in civilian life. If you think they only happen to people in combat, you need look no further than the headlines, mass shootings. And you have to make these decisions without the benefit of long periods of time to contemplate them. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. After a wave of mass shootings, the governor of New York has signed a new law raising the age to purchase a semi-automatic rifle. New Yorkers under the age of 21 will now be prohibited from buying semi-automatic weapons. New York's Attorney General Letitia James says her office is ready to defend the new gun law against any challenges. To all those who think, all those drunk with power, who think that they will challenge these laws, let me tell you that the Second Amendment is not absolute. New York's governor signed 10 gun-related bills today as the state became one of the first in the country to enact legislation following another wave of gun violence in cities across the country, including more mass shootings over the weekend. As a response to the school shooting in 
Uvalde, Texas last month, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee signed an executive order to ensure school safety measures are followed. From member station WPLN, Blaze Ganey tells us the order will enforce laws that are already in place. Governor Lee is calling for an increase in audits on security measures, school districts to publish detailed safety plans, and for law enforcement agencies to expand and improve existing active shooter training. Gun control advocates and Democrats in the state have called for new gun regulations, but Lee has said that's not on his agenda. We're not looking at gun restriction laws in, in my administration right now. There's one thing to remember. Criminals don't follow laws. This comes a day after a nightclub shooting in Chattanooga that left three dead and more than a dozen injured. The city's mayor called for mandatory background checks and prohibiting high-capacity magazines. For NPR News, I'm Blaze Ganey in Nashville. Stocks finished slightly higher on Wall Street with gains from Microsoft pushing up the tech sector. You're listening to NPR News. Elon Musk is threatening to end his proposed takeover of Twitter. As NPR's David Gura tells us, Musk accused Twitter of not complying with his request for data on fake accounts. In a letter to Twitter filed with regulators, Elon Musk's legal team says Twitter officials are refusing to provide data on the company's user base, information Musk says he needs to complete his proposed takeover of the social media company. According to one of his lawyers, Musk reserves the right to terminate the deal if Twitter doesn't provide the data. He says it's a clear material breach of Twitter's obligations under the terms of the agreement. Tesla CEO said previously he was putting the deal temporarily on hold because of concerns about the number of fake accounts on Twitter. Musk has offered to buy the company for $44 billion. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The U.S. Supreme Court has declined to hear an appeal from a prominent St. Louis couple who sought to end their probation. The husband and wife attorneys had their law licenses suspended for a year after pointing guns at racial injustice protesters outside their mansion in 2020, Mark McClowski says he wasn't surprised by the court's decision. He's among several Republicans running for a U.S. Senate seat in Missouri's primary. The state Supreme Court there says the couple can still practice law but must also provide 100 hours of free legal service. Stocks finished slightly higher on Wall Street today. You're listening to NPR. I'm Dwayne Brown. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The search for the next superintendent of Boston Public Schools is moving forward. Mayor Michelle Wu says the second round of job interviews could begin as soon as tomorrow. She tells WBUR's Radio Boston the city needs a strong manager who can hit the ground running. And Wu says she hopes to reshape the role to relieve pressure that has historically fallen on school leaders. If we look back in Boston's history in the times when we've seen cohesion and a real sense of optimism about the district, it was when there was a very close working relationship with the mayor was willing to create space for the superintendent to do what they needed to do. The search comes amid blistering state criticism of the district's performance. The new superintendent will be Boston's fifth in the last decade. New Hampshire is urging schools to review their safety policies in response to the school shooting in Texas last month. Republican Governor Chris Sununu says classroom doors should be locked when class is in session and schools should only use one main entrance. He says those measures come from a report compiled by the state school safety preparedness task force. That group was formed after the Parkland, Florida school shooting four years ago. 
The Benjamin Franklin Institute of Technology in Boston will soon offer a new certificate and associate degree in clean energy building automation systems. Today, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley was at the college's South End campus to deliver $300,000 in federal funding for the program. This is part of an $8 million government spending package passed by the president in March. Presley will also award project grants to nine other communities in her district. As of today, couples can get married at the central branch of the Boston Public Library. Ceremonies are held on the first Monday of every month and can last up to one hour. They cost $200 and can be reserved on a first-come, first-served basis. It's 436. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Make your dreams a priority with a part-time MBA from Babson. Ranked the top Northeast Graduate School for Entrepreneurship by the Princeton Review and Entrepreneur Magazine. Attend online or in person. Apply by June 24th for scholarship consideration for fall 2022. Babson.edu slash part-time. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, lows around 57, mostly sunny, warm tomorrow, the highs around 78 degrees, mostly cloudy Wednesday with a chance of showers or thunderstorms, the high 74. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of a Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington, where the Senate is still trying to find a compromise on guns. As they spent the weekend negotiating, shootings in three cities killed nine and wounded more than 20 people. Tatiana Washington wants to see President Biden take a bigger role in addressing gun violence. She told us that even before the shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo and across the country this weekend. She's an organizer with March for Our Lives and was a guest of the First Lady at Biden's joint address to Congress during his first year in office. She is back with us today. Tatiana Washington, thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I know when we spoke to you earlier, you said you were disappointed in Biden's actions or lack thereof, as you saw it, on gun violence. What did Mm -hmm. you think of his remarks? He gave a big address to the nation about this just last Thursday. Yeah, you know, definitely happy to hear his remarks. But I think it just feels like talk is cheap and we need action. I think it would have been really nice if President Biden would have encouraged folks to call up their senators and tell them that we need to get a vote on universal background checks. Because we know like once there's applied pressure, we see results. And I think that's something that like possibly President Biden missed a mark on. And we're just tired of hearing a lot of words and seeing very little action. What about specifics in terms of what you would like to see him do? I mean, he can use executive action to put limits on guns. What specifically would you like to see him do? Mm -hmm. It's something that, you know, we at March for Our Lives has been advocating for since he's been in office is to elect a gun violence prevention director and have someone that's, you know, a cabinet level member that focuses on gun violence prevention. Because again, he doesn't need congressional approval to do that. He can do that right now 
In terms of other things that gun control activists, including you, would like to see done, do you believe the president can actually make much difference, given how strong the gun lobby is in this country um, and without legislation from Congress, federal legislation? You know, I think a lot of us are wondering why we aren't seeing a vote on something that 90 percent of Americans support, which is universal background checks. And so we can see the folks who are with us and who aren't with us so we can start mobilizing against them. And I think President Biden can encourage folks to do so, to call up their senders. 90 percent of Americans support universal background checks. Imagine every single person who supports universal background checks called and emailed their sender every single day. That would get, start to get annoying, right? And applying some public pressure would encourage to bring it to a vote. This weekend, there will be another March for Our Lives, both in Washington and other places in the country, right? Correct, yes. Okay. And this is the second since your organization came together after Parkland and, and the shooting there in 2018. How are you thinking about this moment? All of our efforts over the last four years, from registering our peers to vote, to taking on the NRA, I think this moment feels different because instead of lawmakers running from these tragedies and hiding from the NRA, they are reaching across the aisle to find common ground. And I think, you know, when all of us come out and we all march, we are going to show these politicians that we need action and not just cheap talk. Well, you had the first lady's ear when you were her guest uh, at President Biden's address to Congress. Um, if you had his ear right now, what would you lean down and tell him? You know, I think the first thing would be to appoint a director of gun violence prevention. I think that's something that will save lives. I think also I would hope that President Biden would really encourage our allies in Congress that do support gun violence prevention to apply some pressure. Something that I think will always and like forever stick out to me is the late Congressman John Lewis and how he always was willing to fight and encourage folks to get into good trouble. And I would encourage our elected officials to take that route. And it's really time to get into some good trouble and really demand a vote on something that's so simple as a background check. That's the bottom, not the floor. And they will meaningly reduce gun deaths. And that's something that we just need to see. We've been speaking with Tatiana Washington, an organizer with March for Our Lives. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. She was a fixture on Boston television spanning four decades and became synonymous with winter storm coverage. And as you can see, Route 9 behind me here is uh, really just wet now, as are most of the main... Shelby Scott died last week at her home in Arizona. She was 86 years old. Scott arrived at WBZ-TV4 in Boston back in 1965 as the only woman doing television news in the city. She co-anchored the new news for many years and in 1977 became part of the first all-female anchor team in the country. Former WBZ-TV news director Peter Brown says she knew exactly what she was doing. She was a pro, and as welcoming as she was to everybody, there was a little bit of a gruff exterior to Shelby. It's because of the path that she really created for so many women and men, and the trailblazer that she was. She knew who she was, and um, she was there to get a job done. And while she was noted for her live reports from the worst weather New England had to offer, Brown says Shelby Scott was also a dogged political reporter who chased down stories at the Statehouse. 
I think of the many politicians on Beacon Hill who didn't always enjoy when Shelby came knocking because she would not take their spin. She knew the story and she wanted straight answers. I would say she didn't uh, buy anybody's BS. Brown said that Scott had a wonderful sense of humor and never took herself too seriously. He said Scott was a journalist and a storyteller. And what meant the most to her was being able to share the news with the local audience. The local audience meant a lot to her. That was her connection uh, to New England. She had a job to do. She knew what that job was. And at the end of the day, it was to tell the truth of what's happening, whether it was on Beacon Hill, whether it was with a snowstorm, whether it was spot news. It was all about connecting with the audience. Scott was the national president of the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. She was inducted into the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame in 2008. Health officials are warning that the current monkeypox outbreak is larger than it appears. At the moment, there are about 800 reported cases. Those cases have been found in more than two dozen countries, including the U.S. Officials at both the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the World Health Organization say many transmissions are being missed. Here to explain why is NPR's Michaeline Duclef. Hey, Michaeline. Hi, Mayor Louise. All right, so 800 cases, not great, obviously, but compared to COVID, it doesn't sound very big. Why are health officials worried? Well, the concern is because the virus seems to have changed, especially in terms of how it spreads. There's a possibility it has become more contagious. Another big problem is the virus is spreading under the radar. Doctors and nurses have been missing a lot of cases. And when a virus spreads cryptically like this, it can be really hard to stop. And there's a chance it could become a long-term problem. Although I have read it causes a very distinctive rash. So I guess I'm curious why doctors would be missing it. It seems like it's easy to spot. Yeah. So in the current outbreak, the symptoms actually of monkeypox aren't matching up with what you describe, with what doctors were actually taught in medical school. I was talking to Dr. Donald Venn about this. He's been taking care of patients with monkeypox at McGill University. He says if you look in a medical textbook, you'll see pictures of people with this horrible rash. It's glaring. You see skin lesions, the pox lesions covered, uh, eventually head to toe on the person. And again, we're not seeing that. For starters, in this outbreak, the rash can be very localized. It's often in the genital region, and there can be very few lesions. One recent patient, Ven says, had only one small lesion. I mean, it is extremely subtle. It is not what you're seeing on the Google pictures of monkeypox. And so this is a bit concerning, because if you have subtle lesions, skin lesions, and they're contagious, you can see how this may lead to more propagation that can be missed. In fact, Vin says doctors could easily misdiagnose these cases for common sexually transmitted diseases such as herpes or syphilis. Although it sounds like the good news, if, if we can say that, is that the rash isn't as bad as classic monkeypox. Is it milder what's spreading now? So it can be mild. That's what they're seeing. But it can also be really severe and really painful. And it, may, it can make you sick for like up to four weeks, sometimes even put you in the hospital. And for young children or people with suppressed immune systems, it can be really severe. So bottom line, it sounds like doctors need to change what they are looking for. Exactly. Officials in the UK are asking everyone who has a blister-like rash to go to a sexual health clinic where practitioners are really good at looking out for STDs. And here in the U.S., Jennifer McQuiston at the CDC says doctors should suspect monkeypox in anyone with a new rash.
there could be community level transmission that is happening and that's why we want to really encourage physicians that if they see a rash and they're concerned it might be monkeypox to go ahead and test for that. One more thing to ask you, Michaeline, which is do we know more about how it is transmitted? I have read it's primarily transmitted through sex. Yeah. You know, we don't know exactly yet if it's sexually transmitted, but they do know that it spreads through close physical contact, which, of course, can happen during sex. Um, Right now, many cases are in men who identify as having sex with men. And in some places like Montreal, people have caught it at gay bathhouses. But the WHO says this virus can infect anyone and countries need to broaden out the scope of their testing and surveillance. We've been speaking with NPR's Michaeline Duclef. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marylise. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Those lockdowns in Shanghai got the food service supply chain over there all jumbled up. So say hello to random bulk buying. So instead of you getting ABC, he getting XYZ, everybody get DEF. I'm Kai Rizdal, Alphabet Soup in Shanghai next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 77 degrees in Boston at 449. Ahead on All Things Considered, many cities are trying to accommodate a big surge in cycling. Collisions between bikes and vehicles are soaring, and advocates say it's partly because cities don't prioritize safe cycling. That's just ahead here on WBUR. Join WBUR reporter Barbara Moran Wednesday, June 8th for a conversation on local sustainable eating, plus a gardening demo and farmer's market at City Space. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And the Lyric Stage with The Light, a newly engaged couple faces long-buried secrets. Can they survive the truth? Now through June 26th, tickets at LyricStage.com. WBUR is going out on a limb, and we hope you'll join us. I'm Rupa Shanoi. We're eliminating a five-day on-air fundraiser this month so you can hear WBUR uninterrupted. But we still need to make our goal. Take a minute right now and give monthly at WBUR.org. That way we'll meet the goal and you can still hear all the news and storytelling that brings us together. Give now, and thank you. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Lots of Americans became cyclists during the pandemic. And across the country, cities are trying to accommodate this boom in cycling by developing more bike lanes and trails. But some cycling advocates say that's not enough. They see a disconnect between making safe cycling infrastructure and streets that still favor cars and trucks. From Chicago, NPR's David Shaper reports. I'm standing along Chicago's iconic DuSable Lakeshore Drive where cars are speeding through Grant Park. But 
that's what roads like this are supposed to do, right? Move cars and trucks along fast? Well, the first vehicles on the nation's roads weren't automobiles, they were carriages and bikes. In fact, the League of American Bicyclists has been around since 1880, long before cars. We lobbied Congress at the end of that century to get the first paved roads in the United States. Bill Nesper heads the league and says it wasn't until after World War II that our streets became so car-centric. And it continues to this day, a prioritization of moving vehicles as quickly as possible through places. And it's absolutely true that people moving and getting around by foot and by bike is an afterthought, if thought about at all. But many cities, including Chicago, are now trying to change that. In a recent speech to the City Club of Chicago, Transportation Commissioner Gia Biagi announced a big new plan to build up the city's bicycling infrastructure. So when you match this vision for trails and corridors to our pursuit of that citywide bike system, you get the most connected city in the country, and that is where we are headed. But many of those who ride bikes in Chicago are not applauding. In fact, they've been in a somber mood because in recent weeks, three cyclists have been killed by cars. I hate putting these on. I hate everything about this. Christina Whitehouse is founder of a group called Bike Lane Uprising. She and dozens of other cyclists joined the family of Gerardo Marciales in placing a ghost bike, a bike spray painted white as a memorial, at the intersection where he was killed by a driver who ran a red light. The reason that so many people are here is because we've all had our own close calls. White House says cyclists are getting hit and killed by cars and trucks at an alarming rate, so much so that she's had to start buying ghost bike materials in bulk. According to the National Safety Council, 1,260 bicyclists were killed in 2020, up 16% from the year before, and 44% more than a decade ago. But cycling advocates say it's not just fast and reckless driving that puts cyclists at risk, but also how roads and intersections are designed. Like many cities, Chicago has been adding bike lanes to its street grid, painting white stripes four to six feet wide on certain thoroughfares, giving cyclists their own lane. But very few of those lanes are protected. And White House says too many drivers don't respect them. Paint is not protection. It's not going to prevent anyone from, you know, running me over. Her group, Bike Lane Uprising, documents bike lane violations and maps problem areas. Volunteers upload photos and videos of cars and trucks stopping, parking, and driving in bike lanes with little to no enforcement. And Bill Nesper of the League of American Cyclists say similar bike safety problems exist all across the country. While there's been a lot of infrastructure that has been put in in the last 20 years, like bike lanes and protected bike lanes, more connected off-street trails, there still aren't safe places to ride in most communities where people feel safe. But Nesper says there's billions of dollars in new federal infrastructure funding headed to cities and states, some of it specifically for safe bicycling infrastructure. We believe that all of our streets, there is an engineering solution to this. At a minimum, experts suggest painting bike lanes green so they stand out more and adding plastic bollards between car and bike lanes. Ideally, they say bike lanes should be separated by concrete curves or barriers. Amy Rynell heads the Chicago-based Active Transportation Alliance. At any intersection, on any street, there are things we could do for not a lot of money to slow cars down. And that takes political will. It may take removing some parking. It may take lowering speed limits or changing lights. But we can do it. It's not rocket science. 
Chicago and many other cities are installing some of these measures, but some urban planners say they have to walk a delicate line while building safe bicycling infrastructure at a time car and truck road congestion is getting worse. Because like it or not, those vehicles are here to stay. David Shaper, NPR News, Chicago. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our new series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone. Today's story comes from Chewy Clinton. Chewy grew up on a ranch in Idaho. As a teenager, he lived a typical small-town existence, but he was holding on to a secret that weighed him down, a secret he felt was too big to tell anyone, even his best friend, Spencer. Then, one weekend, his senior year of high school, something changed. My parents were away, and it was the one and only time I ever had a party out at my place. Just tons of people had a great time, and Spencer and I were hanging out, and he was drinking and, you know, having problems with his girlfriend at the time. And he was just, like, frustrated and upset, and he wanted to go home. Well, I wouldn't let anybody go home in their cars that night who had done any drinking whatsoever. And then I was like, no, no, no. Let's just go walk around and talk. And we were walking and talking, and he was sort of unloading to me his frustrations with his relationship. And there was just a lull in the conversation after a couple of miles. And it was nothing that I would ever expect. And planned to tell him. And planned to say it even as we started walking. Because it was something I never thought I could say to anybody who had grown up with because it was really dangerous. It just, it broke in me. And I just said it. I said, Spencer, I'm gay. And you know, there was a momentary silence. Without anything else, he just put his arm around me as we were walking And he said, that's okay. You're still my best friend. And I still love you. For somebody to tell me they loved me when I told them that was unlike anything I could have ever asked for. It was like a relief valve. It was like this constant weight that had been building on me suddenly lifted a little bit. As long as our friendship went on, he just asked questions. And I never had anybody that I could tell things to. I could never have known what it would feel like to have that kind of friendship. Chewy Clinton of Washington, D.C. Chewy went off to college after high school graduation, and though their friendship faded, Chewy says he will always remember the compassion that Spencer showed him. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts, and to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options. 
at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. WBUR supporters include summer term at Boston University with a wide range of courses in math and science, including pre-med offerings in biology, chemistry, neuroscience, and physics. BU also offers over 50 math courses, statistics, calculus, probability, linear algebra, differential equations, and more. Visit bu.edu slash summer. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. What does Mexico and St. Kitts and Nevis really have in common? Or Belize and Brazil? The Summit of Americas begins in less than two days. It's a meeting between heads of state from countries across the Western Hemisphere that often gets messy. It's Monday, June 6th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up on WBUR, a preview of the summit. Also ahead, authorities say baby formula is likely to remain in short supply for some time to come. Factories have boosted their production and additional formula is being shipped in from other countries. And in San Diego, about 12% of childcare centers have closed since March 2020. We'll look at one lower income, high minority neighborhood that has been hit particularly hard. It's 501. Now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. It's been over 100 days since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Cyber attacks have been a major part of the war, but so far U.S. companies have not been caught in the crossfire. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin reports U.S. officials are celebrating that success but remain vigilant. The strategy to defend against Russian cyber attacks during the war in Ukraine is working so far, according to two senior cybersecurity officials, Jen Easterly, the director of DHS's cyber agency, CISA, and Chris Inglis, the White House cyber director. They published an op-ed with online trade publication CyberScoop. The Biden administration's strategy, named Shields Up, involves putting U.S. companies on high alert about specific tactics Russian hackers are using or might deploy in retaliation for the West's support of Ukraine. The Russian foreign ministry, meanwhile, released a statement threatening to launch cyber attacks if anyone attacked Russian critical infrastructure. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. Speaking in France on the 78th anniversary of D-Day, Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley contrasted the Russian invasion of Ukraine with the events of the Second World War. Milley saying the U.S. and its allies will provide what he termed significant support to Ukraine, and he condemned Russia's actions these many years later. What's happened here is an open, uh, unambiguous act of aggression. It is widely considered to be illegal. It is widely considered to undermine the rules that these dead here at Omaha Beach at at the cemetery at, at, at Colville Samaria, uh, died for. Uh, they died for something. They died for that order to be put in place so that we would have a better peace. Millie spoke on the beaches of Normandy on the anniversary of the landing of nearly 160,000 Allied troops, an event that helped liberate Europe from Nazi occupation. 
A new climate change record has been broken. That's according to federal scientists. The level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is the highest it's been in the last four million years. Here's NPR's Lauren Summer. High on the Mauna Loa volcano in Hawaii, scientists keep tabs on levels of heat-trapping carbon dioxide. In May, it hit the highest level yet. CO2 was just under 421 parts per million, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. That level is 50 percent higher than before the Industrial Revolution. Humans have added around 1.5 trillion tons of carbon to the atmosphere since then, largely from digging up and burning fossil fuels. Scientists warn that continuing this trend is leading to dangerous climate impacts like more acidic oceans and more lethal heat waves and storms. Lauren Summer, NPR News. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has survived a no-confidence vote in Parliament. Johnson has struggled to address revelations. He and some members of his staff held booze-fueled parties, essentially flooding restrictions imposed on others during the coronavirus pandemic. Despite 148 votes of no confidence, he secured enough support from his own party to stay in office. On Wall Street, that was a 16 points. The Nasdaq rose 48 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Governor Charlie Baker and Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito met today with domestic violence survivors at the UMass Law School to hear their stories of abuse. Danielle Sicard shared her story of abuse at the hands of her husband. Testifying in a dangerousness hearing in front of the person who tried to kill you is no easy task. It was necessary to save my life and my children's lives, and I felt like having to do it again and again was like fighting for my life, just like I did the day I was attacked. The Baker administration is pushing for legislation that would create new protections for abuse survivors. The governor's dangerousness bill has drawn skepticism from some lawmakers and remains stuck on Beacon Hill. A former Catholic priest who served in several parishes in Rhode Island has been indicted on charges of sexually assaulting a child about 40 years ago. Prosecutors say Kevin Fissett allegedly assaulted the boy in Burrellville in 1981 and 82, while Fissett was a deacon at a church in Hopkinton. The Rhode Island Attorney General's office says Fissett is scheduled to be arraigned on Wednesday. People driving in funeral processions in New Hampshire will no longer have to pay tolls on that state's highways. Governor Chris Sununu signed that executive order today. He says grieving families should be able to travel on state highways unimpeded as they pay their final respects. Toll attendants in the cash lanes are directed to allow all vehicles in the procession to pass through free of charge. The ancient and honorable artillery company carried out one of Boston's oldest traditions today. The change of command ceremonies were held on Boston Common. Captain Thomas Goodfellow took command from Robert Imlach, Jr., The ancient and honorable artillery company preserves historic and patriotic traditions of Boston. According to its website, it's the oldest chartered military organization in the Western Hemisphere, dating back to 1638. Sports, the Red Sox are out in Anaheim tonight to take on the L.A. Angels. The forecast, partly cloudy tonight with a low around 57 degrees. Mostly sunny and warm tomorrow, a high of 78. Mostly cloudy on Wednesday with a chance of showers and thunderstorms. The highs will be near 74 degrees. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. 
and I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. A troubled baby formula plant in Sturgis, Michigan reopened over the weekend. That's good news, but formula is still hard to come by in some parts of the country, and analysts say it could be weeks before supplies are back to normal and anxious parents can relax. In Sturgis, the Abbott plant was shuttered for the last three months over suspected contamination. Formula makers have been scrambling to make up for the missing supply. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now with more on this. Hi, Scott. Hi. And Scott, now that Abbott is making formula again at this Michigan plant, how long before it actually shows up on store shelves? It's going to take some time. For the moment, Abbott is only making specialized formula in Sturgis for babies with particular dietary needs. That's the most urgent concern. A few babies have actually had to be hospitalized over the lack of specialized formula. The first of the new batches should be available in about two weeks. And Abbott also hopes to restart making regular formula in Sturgis as soon as possible, but it hasn't given a precise timetable. You know, before it shut down in February, this plant used to produce about 20% of the nation's overall formula supply, so it's left a pretty big hole to fill. What can you tell us about the overall availability of formula right now? It has taken a hit. Other manufacturers have stepped up production, but in-stock rates at grocery stores have been falling in recent weeks. And that's been a source of concern for a lot of parents. I talked to Derek Runkel, who manages the Berry Foods IGA grocery store in Cleveland, Georgia. He's been posting notices on the store's Facebook page whenever a formula delivery comes in, and he says there's a lot of interest. You know, we're, we're a little grocery store, but I think it probably got like maybe 200 shares in an hour or something like that on Facebook. Yeah, it was uh, just a lot of people still looking for some formula for their kids. And we're just, uh, we're just what, what little bit we get in, we're trying to help out with everyone. I'm trying to look for the formula that my kid needs too, so I understand everyone's pain. Runkle's son is 10 weeks old, and it's been an anxious 10 weeks. Formula supplies have been up and down during that period, he told me, but it does seem to be getting a little bit better. Uh, the store got a delivery just today. Scott, as you described the restarting of the Sturgis plant, it sounded like a slow process. What's being done in the meantime to boost supplies? The Biden administration has been flying in formula from other countries. A fifth plane load is expected later this week, carrying Nestle formula from Germany. Last week, the FDA gave a green light to import more Nestle formula from a factory in Mexico, although the first of those deliveries are not expected until next month. Historically, most of the formula consumed in the U.S. has been made domestically, and other U.S. factories are trying to crank out as much as they can. As part of that strategy, formula makers have been concentrating on their most popular varieties and the most popular sizes, so shoppers may find less variety to choose from on store shelves, but that's part of an effort to get as much formula out there as possible. And what's the verdict on how that's working so far? If you look at the total volume of formula that's being sold in the country, it's actually up considerably from where it was before the Abbott plant was shut down. That's especially been true in the last few weeks as all the formula crunch has been in the news. K.K. Davey, who tracks scanner data for the market research firm IRI, says parents are understandably nervous, so whenever they see formula on the supermarket shelf, they are stocking up, buying more than they usually would, and of course that just adds to the supply challenge. In some ways, this is reminiscent of the great toilet paper run of 2020, and some (laughs) stores are limiting how much formula customers can buy. Uh, Berry Foods in Georgia, for example, it's one can per customer. The store manager and anxious new dad, Derek Runkle, says he's just trying to help as many people as he can. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome.
is less than two days before the Summit of Americas is set to start in Los Angeles, and we finally know who's invited and who is not. The Biden administration says non-democratic countries are not welcome. Well, this morning, Mexico's president made good on his threat that if all countries aren't included, he's not coming to L.A. That's quite a bumpy start to a summit with a history of colorful moments. Joining me now, two NPR correspondents who will be covering this summit, White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Hey, Franco. Hello. And in Los Angeles already, NPR's Carrie Kahn. Hey, Carrie. Hi. I got to start with you, um, Carrie Kahn, because it this feels like quite the snub, no? Mexico's president really is not coming to the summit, which is just right across from his border? Yep. He made it official this morning in his regular weekday press conference. He's threatened for weeks not to come. He said if Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua weren't invited, uh, he wasn't going to come. And, and that's despite public comments from the Biden administration officials for weeks that they were not going to get an invite. They weren't going to give an invite to these three authoritarian leaders. Mm -hmm. um, his absence is quite a snub for the Biden administration. You know, this summit is this the hemisphere's premier regional cooperation conference. It's where you show this united front to, to tackle these common issues. So it's quite a snub for Mexico not to be there. But Lopez Obrador today had a very strong message to the U.S. and what he says has been centuries of dominance in the region and disrespect. Here's a bit of his long rebuke of the U.S. homogeneity in the Americas. El no respetar la soberanía de los países, la independencia de cada país. In no that, he's talking about the U.S. not respecting the sovereignty of countries, their independence. He says he respects President Biden and he will meet with him in July in, in uh, Washington, D.C. Look, Lopez Obrador is in the last years of his presidency and he's really looking toward his leg legacy. He likes to think of himself as the region's leftist elder statesman. He's not a fan of multilateralism and he seldom travels outside of the country. And these summits uh, always have a these headlines these you know there's controversy all the time and this year it appears we have this one yeah franco i wanted to ask you about this why is there always controversy at this particular <laughs> summit and, and start with just what are some of the ones you remember some of the rockier moments of, of summits past yeah i mean i think the best known is probably in 2012 and the lead up to the summit in cartagena colombia you know some secret service agents who were preparing for then president barack obama's arrival were accused of heavy drinking and and hiring prostitutes. Uh, it was a really big scandal, as you may remember. Mm -hmm. And earlier in 2009, there was a lot of attention when then-Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez stood up during a discussion to give Obama a book, a book that criticizes the history of imperialism in the region. And you could really see the discomfort in Obama's face as Chavez, you know, walked over, put his hand on Obama's shoulder and handed him this book that was kind of a Bible for leftist leaders. And really, you could even go back further in 2005, the Argentina soccer legend Diego Maradona. He stole attention from the summit in Argentina when he helped organize a countermarch against then-President George W. Bush and the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. And there are others. Yeah. Uh, Carrie, let me ask about one of the others. Um, controversy over whether to include Cuba or not. Um, there's been controversy to, about that at past summits as well, whether to include Cuba or not. 
Yeah, that comes up a lot. And that was from the get-go, from the inaugural summit in 1994. Cuba was not invited. Then during the Obama presidency, that changed in 2015 in, pa- in Panama. The U.S. was not the host, but it didn't put up roadblocks as it had previously done to a Cuba invite. And Raul, Ca- Raul Castro did go. I was there, and that was the headline that year. We all gathered for their big handshake. It was, it was a, Obama really tried to reset the agenda there. And that really led to, you know, the historic detente between Obama and the U.S. and Cuba and his historic visit to Cuba. And then fast forward, President Trump came into office and very much changed that tone and tenor in Latin America. You know, Trump did not attend the summit in 2018 in Peru. He had a very contentious relationship with many countries in the region. Mm -hmm. It was actually Vice President uh, Pence who committed the U.S. then to host this year's summit in 2022. So much drama. Franco, I'm tempted to ask, do they actually get anything done? <laughs> what, what is it about this particular summit? Yeah, you know, I was talking about this with Dan Restrepo. He was the top advisor to Obama for Latin America. And he says he thinks this summit has actually run its course. You know, we're talking about more than 30 countries with very different interests. And he says the flaw is putting them all together and thinking that you can solve big problems. What does Mexico and St. Kitts and Nevis really have in common? Or Belize and Brazil, right? I mean, they they don't. You know, and he says that's why naturally the attention gets drawn to the personalities and the melodrama, because there's a lack of substance. Instead, he says there should be smaller, more frequent meetings with subregions, for example, one with South America, one with Central America, and another with the Caribbean, for example. Mm. Just real briefly, what are you going to be watching for, Franco? You know, I'll be very curious about Biden's meeting with Jair Bolsonaro. He's Brazil's president. It will be their first meeting, and it could be awkward. Bolsonaro was a close ally to former President Donald Trump, and Bolsonaro also has some of his own anti-democratic tendencies. And PR's Franco Ordonez and Carrie Kahn, thanks to you both. Good luck covering all this. Thank you. Thank you. It's that time of year when we find out who is most likely to succeed and who's the class clown. When we scribble what a long strange trip it's been or have a great summer across pages marked with the school mascot. Yearbooks have been around for decades, for centuries, even for millennia. That's according to a new discovery from 2000 years ago. It's tremendously exciting to discover something that's been sitting in a museum without the wider world knowing about it. Peter Little from the University of Manchester led the study of an ancient Greek inscription on a marble slab. It had been in the National Museum Scotland vaults for 135 years, and it was actually a list of young men who had graduated from a military training class in Athens. It lists the 31 co-cadets who were involved in this group. Other than their names, what else did it say? Maybe let's keep in touch or stay cool or never change. At the bottom it says Kaisaros, which means of Caesar, which is a reference to the Emperor Claudius, who reigned 41 to 54 AD. Okay, not quite the same as our current day slang, but historians believe this artifact does share the same basic ideas of a modern yearbook. These things were written up in order to commemorate a group or instill some camaraderie among a group. So achievement, school spirit, shared memories, a celebration for a group of friends who went through military training together 2000 years ago. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 77 degrees in Boston at 518. Ahead on All Things Considered, the leader of the far-right Proud Boys and four associates have been charged with seditious conspiracy over January 6th. That story's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Experience Gorilla Grove, the incredible new immersive outdoor gorilla habitat at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo. Plan your visit at franklinparkzoo.org. And Babson College, make your dreams a priority with their part-time MBA. Apply by June 24th for scholarship consideration. Babson.edu slash part-time. In business news, gasoline prices in the Bay State have hit a new record high. According to AAA, the average statewide price of gasoline is now $4.96 a gallon. The AAA says that it has already topped $5 a gallon in several areas. The highest average prices are on the islands with the Vineyard at $5.89 and Nantucket at $5.78. Wall Street stocks closed slightly higher today. The Dow up 16 points to close at 32,916. NASDAQ up four-tenths of a percent, 49 points to 12,061. And the S&P 500 was up three-tenths of a percent to end the day at 41.21. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to helping improve the lives of people with sickle cell disease. Now hiring for cell and genetics therapies teams. More at vrtx.com. And Porter Square Books, a neighborhood bookstore in Cambridge and Boston with extended summer hours, events, book recommendations, and more, portersquarebooks.com. The forecast, partly cloudy tonight. The lows will be around 57, mostly sunny and warm tomorrow. Highs around 78 degrees, mostly cloudy on Wednesday. Chances some showers or thunderstorms. The highs near 74 degrees. Right now, 77 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Explosive new charges today against the leader of the far-right Proud Boys. A grand jury has accused Enrique Tarrio and four associates of seditious conspiracy in connection with the riot at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. NPR's Carrie Johnson has been following the case, and she's here now with details. Hi, Carrie. Hi there. Carrie, how significant is this charge of seditious conspiracy? It's very significant. These charges are brought very rarely. Basically, they require the Justice Department to prove an attempt to overthrow or destroy the government by using force. The grand jury here in Washington, D.C. says the facts it's reviewed in connection with the January 6th attack meet that bar. And Enrique Tarrio, the leader, four of his top lieutenants, are presumed innocent for now. They've been detained in federal custody, and that's where they're going to stay until trial. 
For the Justice Department to unveil these charges now, what new information has come to light? You know, that's less clear. There isn't a lot of new detail in these court papers. We do know one member of the Proud Boys in this group pleaded guilty earlier this year, but not much more than that. And you might remember, Enrique Tarrio wasn't on the Capitol grounds on January 6th, but prosecutors say that he directed other Proud Boys and communicated with them on social media and using other channels. The indictment quotes Tarrio as posting quote, proud of my boys and my country after the violence began. And later that night, it quotes him crowing with one of his associates about how the certification process got delayed. Carrie, as you know, members of another far-right group, the Oath Keepers, are also fighting sedition charges. What's the latest there? Yeah, that case involves Stuart Rhodes. People might remember him because he's pretty visible. He wears an eye patch. Rhodes and 10 members of the Oath Keepers are also facing these seditious conspiracy uh, charges. Authorities say they assembled a sort of quick reaction force and stockpiled weapons across the river in Virginia. Prosecutors say Rhodes kept buying weapons even after January 6th, and they have a lot of his own messages to try to use against him. He's pleaded not guilty. But three Oath Keepers have pleaded guilty and agreed to help the government build that bigger case. These charges come as the House committee that's investigating January 6th prepares for its first public hearings. Is it clear whether that influenced the timing today? You know, it's not clear. Members of the panel have been very tough on the Justice Department. They want to see more action on what they consider an attack on democracy. The panel already planned to highlight some of the activities of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers during its public hearings. But what we don't know is how close the DOJ might be to that next level. The funders and organizers of the political rallies in late December and early January 2021. We do know the FBI has been investigating. There have been some grand jury subpoenas, but we're really waiting to see what happens next. Remember, Attorney General Merrick Garland has vowed to go after anyone accountable for January 6th at, quote, every level. That's NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thank you. Happy to be here. During the pandemic, many child care providers had to at least temporarily close their doors. From member station KPBS in San Diego, reporter Claire Tregesser says even temporary closures were enough to push some over the brink. Carolina Festo walks over the cracked concrete outside her home in San Diego City Heights neighborhood and envisions something entirely different, a play space for kids. So I want to fix to put the concrete and put the uh, fake glasses, but it's a lot of money. I cannot afford it uh, to do that. Festo is a refugee from Burundi who used to run a home childcare with 12 kids. When COVID started, she had to close. All her clients were refugees who worked in hotel housekeeping, and they were laid off. I lost my clients because the parents didn't go to work, so they decided to stay with the kids. So I lost my job that way. Festo's childcare was one of almost 4,000 that closed in California after COVID hit. During the pandemic, the rate of childcare closures nearly tripled, on average, almost five a day. And many of those businesses, like Festo's, have not been able to reopen. It was very tough and very difficult for me to come back in business because a lot of clients moved 
out of San Diego. In many places, closures hit the most vulnerable neighborhoods the hardest. And while there was some government aid for childcare, it didn't do enough. Festo says with more money, she'd be able to build an extra room and care for kids whose parents work night shifts. So my plan, I wanted to put one more room upstairs. And a lot of them just couldn't make it. They didn't have a savings account they could rely on. Kim McDougall runs the Child Care Resource Service for the San Diego YMCA. She says even a small disruption is enough to put child care providers out of business, especially in lower income areas. Many of our higher income communities were able to maintain their child care supply. And that's probably because they're able to charge a higher price for the care. And those businesses likely had a safety net. She says during COVID, the country lost about 9% of its child care supply. And there was already a big deficit. Are you so happy? Yeah. What do you think? Ariana Steck sits at a desk in her small apartment with four different baby contraptions all within arm's reach. Right now, her six-month-old son, Griffin, is standing in a jumper surrounded by colorful buttons that play music. I started using a licensed family child care home for one day a week, and the rest of the days I am child care and employee. Steck has been back at work for a month. While she put Griffin on child care waitlist long before he was actually born, she hasn't been able to find full-time care. Many centers didn't have vacancies until the winter of 2022. Um, one center told me they had over 100 infants on their wait list. <laughs> I was like, well, we're, he's going to be, you know, in preschool by the time you call us. So she's attempting to work from home while caring for a baby. My very first week back, I started my days at about four in the morning um, and he slept until seven. So I got three hours. That wasn't sustainable. Now she gets a little more sleep and tries to work while Griffin plays. Like tummy time in his bedroom, we have a little footstool. I park my laptop on that and he's sitting right next to me. Steck actually works in part doing childcare referrals. So she has better access to childcare than almost anyone. And when she was pregnant, she knew there was a childcare crisis. But once like you're sitting in it, you're like, oh, this is a crisis. There, there is a legitimate thing happening here where there is a huge demand for infant care and the supply is just not there. She says if she didn't have a flexible employer, she'd have to quit her job. For NPR News, I'm Claire Tregesser in San Diego. The third summer of the pandemic is here. So we're checking in with new White House COVID czar Ashish Jha. He says vaccines for children under age five could be just weeks away. And he says it's a good thing for Americans to be less fearful of COVID right now. A discussion with the Biden administration's COVID response coordinator on the next Consider This podcast from NPR. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 76 degrees in Boston at 529. Ahead on All Things Considered, 18 cancer patients in a small study experienced something miraculous recently. Each of their tumors vanished after an experimental treatment. We'll have details just ahead. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight with a low around 57 degrees. It'll be mostly sunny and warm tomorrow. The highs around 78 degrees. 
Mostly cloudy on Wednesday with a chance of showers or thunderstorms. The highs will be around 74 degrees. Mostly cloudy again on Thursday. The showers are likely early on. The highs will be around 75 degrees. And Friday should be sunny. The highs near 78. Again, right now, it's 76 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering. WBUR is conducting a bold experiment in fundraising this month. Instead of a five-day on-air fundraiser, you will hear WBUR uninterrupted. That's right, no on-air fundraiser. But we still need to meet our goal, and we can. If you take a minute right now and make a monthly gift at WBUR.org. It's that simple and that powerful. Give monthly at WBUR.org. And thanks. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The White House is defending its decision to exclude certain Latin American countries, including Cuba, from attending this week's summit here, Summit of the Americas here in Los Angeles. This is the first time since 1994 that the gathering of world leaders from the Western Hemisphere will take place on U.S. soil. But Mexico's president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, says he will skip the summit in protest dealing a blow to the administration's efforts to rally governments to work together to address surging migration. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says they did try to engage with Mexico's president about the summit. The president's principal position is that we do not believe that dictators should be invited, which is the reason um, that he has, um, the president has decided not to attend. Meanwhile, the White House has invited Lopez Obrador to Washington in August. Mexico's president had been leading a chorus of mostly leftist leaders pushing the U.S. to invite Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela to that summit. British defense officials say the United Kingdom is sending long-range multiple launch rocket systems to Ukraine to help the army there battle better-armed Russian forces. Here's NPR's Frank Lankford. Britain's M270 multiple launch rocket system can fire a dozen surface-to-surface missiles within a minute. They have a range of 50 miles and can strike targets with great accuracy. The systems, the UK has not said exactly how many it's sending, will allow the Ukrainians to strike far deeper into Russian-held territory. Ukrainian commanders have complained that they don't have enough long-range weapons to match the Russians. The British will train Ukrainian soldiers how to operate the systems in the UK. The UK's move follows a similar decision by the US to send rocket systems to Ukraine as well. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. Stocks finished slightly higher on Wall Street with gains for Microsoft pushing up the tech sector today. The tech-heavy Nasdaq gained 48 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and Massachusetts Commissioner of Elementary and Secondary Education Jeff Riley have very different ideas about the best path forward for Boston public schools. As WBUR's Chris Siderick reports, there are plenty of questions left unanswered. Mayor Wu and Commissioner Riley have yet to agree on a number of specific deadlines and even how the reform should be structured. Wu favors a partnership with the state. Riley is pushing for more personal accountability from the mayor. We're still in talks. I know our teams met, I believe, on Friday and had a very productive conversation. Beyond the overall approach to the reform, the big question is whether the district will be put under state receivership. Mayor Wu says that would be unacceptable. We need a long-term, sustainable vision for the Boston Public Schools that comes from the Boston Public Schools. Part of that vision includes selecting a new superintendent. Mayor Wu says the second round of interviews for that job will start tomorrow. For 90.9 WBUR, 
I'm Chris Siderick. The Boston Latin School has a new leader. Jason Gallagher was named the next head of the prestigious exam school today. He's been principal of the Harvard-Kent Elementary School in Charlestown for the past 11 years. Gallagher also is a 1991 graduate of Boston Latin School. He will replace Rachel Skerritt, who is stepping down at the end of the current school year. Gallagher officially takes over on July 1st. The Massachusetts portion of the longest road in the country could be named for Medal of Honor recipients. The Massachusetts House has engrossed a bill that names U.S. House uh, U.S. Route 20 the Medal of Honor Highway. Route 20 stretches all the way from Kenmore Square to Newport, Oregon, including 153 miles across Massachusetts. It's 534. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com And the Cabot in Beverly with Tommy Emanuel, often regarded as one of the greatest acoustic guitarists of all time. Saturday, June 18th. Tickets at thecabot.org. In sports, the Red Sox are in Anaheim tonight to take on the Angels. The forecast, partly cloudy tonight. Lows will be around 57 degrees. Mostly sunny and warm tomorrow. The high around 78. Mostly cloudy on Wednesday. Chance of some showers or thunderstorms. The high is near 74 degrees. Right now it's 76 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. A tiny group of people with rectal cancer just experienced something of a miracle. Their cancer simply vanished after an experimental treatment. In a very small trial, these patients took a drug called dostarlamab for six months. And in the end, Every one of them saw their tumors disappear. Now, this trial was small, just 18 people, and there's still more to be learned about how the treatment worked. But some scientists say these kinds of results have never been seen in the history of cancer research. So to talk more about this is Dr. Hannah Sanoff of the University of North Carolina's Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Center. She's not involved with the study. That was done by doctors with New York's Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. But Dr. Sanoff has written about the results. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, we are typically very cautious about focusing on studies that are so tiny, but there has been so much cautious enthusiasm about this that we wanted to talk about it. Could you tell us your reaction when you heard about the results? Absolutely. I mean, I am incredibly optimistic. Like you said in the introduction, we have never seen anything work in 100% of people in cancer medicine. We should note, I believe that with rectal cancer, some cases can involve chemo, radiation, surgery, maybe a combination of all of those. How does this drug work? This drug is one of a class of drugs called immune checkpoint inhibitors. And these are immunotherapy medicines that work not by directly attacking the cancer itself, but actually getting a person's immune system to essentially do the work. And these are drugs that have been around in melanoma and other cancers for quite a while, but really have not been part of the routine care of colorectal cancers until fairly recently. 
And typically drugs have side effects. What kinds of side effects were there with this one? Very, very few in this study. In fact, surprisingly few. Most people had um, no severe uh, adverse effects at all. You've said before that this clinical trial is practice changing for the field. In what way do you view it as practice changing? Well, our hope would be that for this subgroup of people, which is, I think we should point out, only about 5 to 10% of people who have rectal cancer, if they can go on and just get six months of immunotherapy and not have any of the rest of this, I, I don't even know the word to use. Paradigm shift is um, often used, but this really absolutely is paradigm shifting. I do want to emphasize that we often cheer for people when we hear that they have kicked cancer, but the aftermath of what they can deal with physically and, and side effects can still be life-changing, which is why the idea of being able to skip surgery is so revolutionary. Yes. In rectal cancer, this is part of the conversation we have with someone when they're diagnosed is, you know, we are very hopeful for being able to cure you, but unfortunately we know our treatments are going to leave you with consequences that may in fact be life-changing. I mean, I have had patients who after their rectal cancer have barely left the house for years and in a couple cases, even decades because of the consequences of incontinence and, and the shame that's associated with this. Have you ever had patients that said they've regretted getting the treatment? You bet. Really? Yeah. So if this drug ends up being as good as it preliminarily seems to be, what's the next step? What I'd really like us to do is get a bigger trial where this drug is used in a much more diverse setting to understand what the real true response rate's going to be. It, it's not going to end up being 100%. Um, I hope I bite my tongue on that in the future, but I can't imagine it will be 100%. And so when we see what the true response rate is, that's when I think we can really do this all the time. That's Dr. Hannah Sanoff of the University of North Carolina's Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Center. Thank you very much. Thank you. Of the nearly 250 mass shootings in the U.S. this year, two have happened in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in the last 10 days. Early Sunday morning, three people were killed and 14 injured outside a nightclub. A week prior, six people, all teenagers, were shot in an altercation between groups. Chattanooga's police department says that these are not linked and that before these last couple of weeks, gun violence was actually down this year. Chattanooga Police Chief Celeste Murphy joins us now live with more information. Chief Murphy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I want to ask about this weekend's shooting. Uh, do you have any update on identifying the suspect or a motive or figuring out what happened? Well, we have the motives we're working with. And unfortunately, um, you know, we're still in the beginning stages of action. And sometimes because it's so complex, sometimes it's a little bit longer, but I don't want to them because I want to we absolutely um, bring some type of to our yeah. and our victim song to make sure yeah. do it right. Okay, uh, your line's a little, it's cutting out in and out a little bit, but it, I, I hear you saying that um, you're working on a couple of motives, but don't want to put stuff out there while you're while you're working on them. What do you attribute, though? I don't know if it's fair to call it a spate of violence, but but two mass shootings on back to back weekends. What's going on? Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty much sure of what a lot of uh, cities are seeing nowadays. Um, you know a lot of gun violence and, and they're in the wrong talking about illegal firearms of youth um, and we're seeing you know, of arguing so quickly and you know, 
guns and that's that they you know the conflict is extremely um disappointing yeah as police chief what can you do about it so there's things that you know we're working of course especially for youth uh youth is something is coming on that i knew i was going to focus on make we this to able to um see measures uh the, the better path in life so through youth programming as well as we want that we um i want to ask about something the mayor chattanooga mayor tim kelly uh told cnn this morning he's an independent he says he wants to see what he called common sense approaches to gun regulation laws um I know you're not in politics. I do wonder, as police chief, would the measures he is calling for make your job and the job of your officers easier? Absolutely. Uh, you know, if we can, from every angle, if we can look at how we can uh, mitigate the excess, you know, and, and the challenges that we're seeing from guns getting into the wrong hand, is a help. Um, I was saying earlier, youth while they're young and putting them pointing them in the right direction opening up our centers you know and, and rec centers and giving access to other life skills and giving them you know just filling that idle time with positive things um, again, your the phone line's a little tough to hear every word, um, but in the moments before I let you go, I'm just curious what the conversation is like when you talk to your counterparts to police chiefs in other cities how does that go these days? Yeah, you know, I've been very, very fortunate to be able to uh, just an outpouring of support from police sheriffs from other jurisdictions. And it's been overwhelmingly welcomed and, and so, you know, my heart is full. And what is what, you know, we just pass around ideas, best practice saying. Right. We have been speaking with the Chief of Police in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Celeste Murphy. Chief Murphy, thanks for your time. Thanks so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A federal judge in Oklahoma ruled today that the state's lethal injection method is constitutional. The case challenged the execution protocol on behalf of two dozen death row inmates. The ruling means the state can now ask for execution dates for all of them. Reporter Chris Polanski of member station KWGS in Tulsa has been following the case. And a warning, this story contains vivid descriptions of executions. Chris is with us now. Chris, this ruling comes after a trial last March. As I understand it, the inmates argued that the way Oklahoma carries out the death penalty violates the U.S. Constitution. What did the judge say in his ruling today? That's right. Judge Stephen Fryett issued a written ruling, and he said that the inmates just failed to meet the burden needed to conclude the execution protocol constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. That simple. So during the trial, what were the arguments from each side? And would you start us off with the argument by the plaintiffs? Sure. Medical experts testifying for the inmates said there are real problems with the three-drug protocol Oklahoma uses, so much so that it should be considered cruel and unusual. At issue is the drug midazolam, which they argued leaves inmates able to feel pain during executions. The drug has been challenged in other states, too. 
During this trial, the plaintiffs pointed to a botched execution last October. As an example, the inmate convulsed and vomited after the drug was given. Experts testified he'd suffered from fluid in the lungs, something this show has reported on back in 2020, this edema, which is relatively common in death row inmates who are executed. Many experts think it shows people are in great pain and distress as they die. And then the defense argument. How did the defense counter this presentation by the prosecution? Well, witnesses for the state argued the opposite. Dr. Irvin Yen is an anesthesiologist and former Republican state senator who's on contract for the state to witness executions. He says inmates are unconscious and don't feel anything as they die. It is important to note the inmates weren't arguing to have their death sentences commuted. They just wanted to choose other lethal injection drugs or a firing squad, which hasn't ever been used in Oklahoma, but is on the books. And Chris, as you know, Oklahoma has had problems over the years in carrying out the death penalty. Would you give us a little overview of that history? Sure. So before last October, the state had gone nearly seven years without an execution. That's because in 2014 and 15, there was a series of botched executions. One man took nearly 45 minutes to die and writhed on the gurney because the IVs were placed incorrectly. Another man was executed using the wrong drugs and as he was dying said he felt like he was on fire. The lead plaintiff on this lawsuit came within minutes of being killed back in 2015 before corrections officials realized they had the wrong drugs on hand. So the state adopted a moratorium, but now seven years later, the first execution was again botched. So now that this Oklahoma federal judge has ruled that the state's lethal injection method is constitutional, what happens now? Well, Jennifer Moreno, an attorney for the prisoners, says that they're assessing options for an appeal. Meanwhile, the state attorney general's office has a statement out celebrating the ruling. They say they plan this week to request execution dates. That is Chris Polanski of member station KWGS in Tulsa. Chris, thank you. Thank you, Sasha. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 76 degrees in Boston at 548. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll take a look at a show-stopping theatrical phenomenon that has fallen out of fashion, the encore. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Cultural Council, committed to supporting a diverse, inclusive, and an anti-racist cultural sector in the Commonwealth. Through their racial equity plan and grant-making, Mass Cultural Council is working to better serve artists and organizations. Learn about their grants and services and the power of culture at massculturalcouncil.org. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight. The lows will be around 57 degrees, mostly sunny, warm tomorrow, high of 78. Mostly cloudy on Wednesday, chance of some showers or thunderstorms. The highs near 74 degrees. Mostly cloudy again Thursday with showers likely early on. The highs near 75. Right now, 76 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com And Fidelity Investments. 
reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. So I talk to lawyers who consult with accusers who are considering coming forward with their accounts of abuse. And the fear that I'm hearing from them is that they'll see how Depp v. Heard played out and they'll think to themselves, why should I come forward with a claim that could possibly result in me being sued? I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. On occasion, we reach back into our All Things Considered archives in search of reports we've done that can offer perspective on today's events. When we rebroadcast an archived piece on the air, we call that an encore. Well, today, we're encoring a piece that is actually about encores, the theatrical kind. You know, when the audience likes something so much that it begs the performers to do it again. In 2012, when we originally broadcast the piece you're about to hear, New York's Metropolitan Opera, which had a policy forbidding encores, had just allowed a performer to do one for only the third time in decades. Our critic Bob Mondello says there was a reason that most venues do not forbid this sort of literal showstopper. I'm not much of an opera buff, but I've been going to concerts and musicals for decades, and I'd give anything to see another encore. I've only ever seen one real audience-driven, can't-go-on-with-the-show-until-you-sing-it-again-because-encore-means-again showstopper. Lots of fake ones, though, and until I saw the real one, I used to think they were real. Take the encore that audiences have always demanded after the title number in Hello, Dolly two dozen tuxedoed waiters at the Harmonia Gardens restaurant welcoming Dolly, in this case Pearl Bailey, who'd been away from the theater for a decade at that point, back where she belongs. Wow, 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 fellas. Look at the old girl now, fellas. There's a runway around the orchestra pit, and right here at the climax of the song, she has led them in an arm-waving parade around it, close enough to touch, and all those waiters arrayed behind her, arms stretched high, and the audience just cheers and cheers. I remember Pearl Bailey really milking that applause, the crowd screaming, more, and her shaking her head no and grinning. Then after a while, she looked down at the conductor, and he pointed to his watch and shook his head no, but they're still cheering, so finally she walks to the side of the stage, kicks off her shoes, hitches up her girdle, and the audience roars because now it's clear that she's going to do another chorus, and the conductor raises his baton. And they're off. Bailey whipping up a frenzy all over again. And this time, all those waiters dance off the stage and into the wings, leaving just her to play the next scene. Which is when it's clear that the whole thing, all that saying no and watch-checking, was fake. For her to be able to play this next scene, they had to dance all those waiters off the stage. Had to. It was going to happen even if nobody applauded. Really smart staging, but not a real showstopper. Real showstopping encores, where the audience takes control and will not let the show start up again until the actors sing the song a second time? I'd read about, but they always seem to be from some previous era. 
Ethel Merman holding the eye in I Got Rhythm for 16 bars and the audience making her sing it over and over because they couldn't believe she'd done it. That's a showstopper. So legendary she did it on TV with Judy Garland years later. That's what you're hearing now. Just to prove she still could. Same reaction, obviously. Another historic one, Mary Martin singing a little Cole Porter ditty in her first Broadway show. And I've come to She's singing sweetly like the ingenue she was and doing a sort of mock strip tease, dropping her fur coat, and the combination just brought the house down on opening night. But when I do, I don't follow through, cause my heart belongs to Daddy. Remember, this was her first show, so when the audience made her sing it again 11 times by some reports, she must have just thought, this is how Broadway works. I just adore his asking for more, but my heart belongs to Daddy. Cole Porter ended up writing her some more lyrics so she could vary it a little. He did something similar in a lot of his shows, actually, adding extra choruses for songs the audience loved. But that's more a reprise than an encore. And once it's written in, the audience isn't stopping the show anymore. The writers are. Like I say, in decades of showgoing, I've only ever seen one, honest-to-God, show-stopping number. At a 1960s revival of Annie Get Your Gun, it starred Ethel Merman, then 54 and still playing 16-year-old Annie Oakley. Ridiculous, right? But Irving Berlin had written a new duet for her and her co-star Bruce Yarnell for the revival, and audiences loved it. They'd been sparring all night and now had different ideas about their wedding. He wanted simple, she wanted fancy. The audience had heard all the other songs, but this one was new and cute, so the crowd stopped the show cold until they sang it again. I want a wedding in a big church with bridesmaids and flower girls. And this time, she was hamming it up. You can hear it in her voice and dancing a little jig around him, and the audience laughed and made them do it again. And the next time, she's pointing her finger at him and poking him in the gut on the line, but not obey. Yes, but not obey. And even if you know they've done it hundreds of times, even recorded it on the album you can buy in the lobby, you figure they're having a great time up there. And this time, when she gets to the line, I want a wedding like the Vanderbilts have, she's pounding on his chest. I want a wedding like the Vanderbilts have. Everything big, not small. And the audience eats it up and makes them do it again. But the fourth time, she did it just like the third time. And the fifth time, she did it just like the third time. And the audience, realizing it wasn't getting anything new, stopped stopping the show. I saw it again a few nights later. Same thing. They sang it six times, not five, so it was real. And if we'd kept applauding, Merman would have kept doing the number. But the director had only come up with three different ways for her to do it, and after that, she, at least, was done. Compare that with the big news in stadium concerts a while back. Toward the end of the evening in their Watch the Throne concert tour, rap stars Kanye West and Jay-Z performed one song over and over and started making headlines with it. At the first tour date in Atlanta, they sang it three times. In Miami, a week or so later, they did it five times. The audience hadn't really been asking for the do-overs at first, but by now it was developing into a matter of city pride. In Boston, they got six encores. In Detroit... Seven. By the end of the Los Angeles run, they were up to ten.
The song, let's note, is almost four minutes long. So, including applause, that's almost 45 minutes of the same song. And how do you follow that? Well, if you're Jay-Z and Kanye West, Far too kind. you follow it with a song called Encore. I'm Bob Mandela. Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook it with the Brooklyn boys. So for one last time, I need y'all to brawl. Tomorrow is primary day in seven states. NPR's Morning Edition will check in on Iowa to preview the competitive race among Democrats choosing their U.S. Senate candidate. The winner takes on Senator Chuck Grassley, who's vying for his eighth term in the Senate. To hear the latest, tune into your radio to Morning Edition tomorrow or ask your smart speaker to play your local station. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore, viking.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios, Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive info sent online can lead to identity theft. Learn more at lifelock.com NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 76 degrees in Boston and a minute before 6 o'clock. Coming up in the next hour of All Things Considered, the different directions some states are moving on gun regulation and safety. That's just ahead here on WBUR. It'll be partly cloudy tonight, lows around 57 degrees, mostly sunny, warm tomorrow, the highs around 78, mostly cloudy on Wednesday with a chance of some showers with thunderstorms. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the new engineering design workshop at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. While New York's governor toughened gun laws in a bill signing, Tennessee's governor is focusing on hardening schools. The efforts show the direction states are moving on gun regulation and safety. It's Monday, June 6th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Also this hour, Russia's military is leading the invasion of Ukraine. But among the forces aiding the invasion are private mercenaries employed by a group financed by a Russian oligarch. Well, you have to understand that the person who is part of this group exists in this legal vacuum. A former mercenary tells his story. And scientists have recorded a song coming from a volcano. They think the musical notes might someday be useful for predicting when a dangerous eruption might occur. It's 6.01, now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. 
The leader of the far-right Proud Boys and four associates have been charged with seditious conspiracy. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports it's the second group to face the rare charge of sedition over the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio wasn't on the Capitol grounds on January 6, 2021, but prosecutors say he helped coordinate the violent effort to disrupt the electoral count that day. Tarrio and four other members of the Proud Boys face new charges of seditious conspiracy. As the violence unfolded, Tarrio allegedly posted, quote, Proud of my boys and my country on social media. A grand jury in Washington, D.C. also indicted the five Proud Boys with conspiracy to prevent officers from carrying out their duties. All five men have been detained and have pleaded not guilty. Members of the far-right Oath Keepers group are already fighting sedition charges in connection with the Capitol riot. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. New York State residents under the age of 21 will be barred from buying semi-automatic rifles under a bill signed into law by that state's governor. Democrat Kathy Hochul signing 10 gun-related bills into law today as the state becomes one of the first to enact legislation in the wake of a recent deadly wave of mass shootings. Another law would require micro-stamping in all new firearms as a way of helping law enforcement solve gun-related crimes. state also enacting a so-called red flag law, which will allow courts to temporarily take guns away from those who might be a threat to themselves or others. However, similar laws in other states have been challenged in court. We're learning more about the mass shooting in Tulsa last week that ended with four dead, including the gunman. Beth Wallace with State Impact Oklahoma has the latest. Two medical professionals and a receptionist were killed on the St. Francis Hospital campus last week by a patient intent on killing the surgeon who performed his back procedure. He succeeded in killing the 59-year-old orthopedic surgeon. Another victim was Army veteran William Love, a guest of a patient who, according to local newspaper reports, now appears to have been holding an exam room door closed along with a physician's assistant and his wife of 54 years. When the shooter fired through the door, Love was hit and died a short time later. Love's family told the Oklahoman newspaper that if Love hadn't been with his wife to hold the door closed, they worry she could have been shot. The family says he died a hero. For NPR News, I'm Beth Wallace in Tulsa. Elon Musk is again threatening to pull the plug on his $44 billion agreement to buy Twitter. Musk accusing the company of not being forthcoming in terms of the number of accounts it has that are controlled by so-called spam bots. Those are robot-generated accounts that Musk believes inflate the company's subscriber numbers. According to a filing with the SEC, Musk has repeatedly said he wants to know how many of the company's 229 million accounts are fake. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 16 points. The Nasdaq rose 48 points. The S&P was up 12 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The search for the next superintendent of Boston Public Schools is moving forward. Mayor Michelle Wu says the second round of job interviews could begin as soon as tomorrow. She tells WBUR's Radio Boston the city needs a strong manager who can hit the ground running. And Wu says she hopes to reshape the role to relieve pressure that has historically fallen on school leaders. If we look back in Boston's history in the times when we've seen cohesion and a real sense of optimism about the district, it was when there was a very close working relationship with the mayor was willing to create space for the superintendent to do what they needed to do. The search comes amid blistering state criticism of the district's performance. The new superintendent will be Boston's fifth in the last decade. 
The stepmother of the little girl who has not been seen since 2019 waived her arraignment on perjury charges today, and she had bail set at $5,000. Manchester police arrested Kayla Montgomery on Friday. She's been charged with lying to a grand jury investigating whether she committed fraud by getting food stamps for Harmony Montgomery, even though the child was not living with her. Kayla Montgomery has not been charged with Harmony's disappearance. A new report from the Greater Boston Food Bank finds 32% of adults in the state experienced food insecurity last year. Rates of food insecurity were highest among the Latinx, Black, LBGTQ plus communities. President and CEO of the Boston, Greater Boston Food Bank, Catherine D'Amato, says while there are hundreds of food pantries available in the region, they will never provide all the food that people need. Think of that food pantry as the emergency room in the hospital. It's going to help you right here, right now, and then hopefully get you on to the next issues, whether that be employment or health or housing. Enrollment in SNAP benefits also rose 9 percentage points from 2020 to 2021. As of today, couples can get married at the central branch of the Boston Public Library. Ceremonies are held on the first Monday of every month and can last up to one hour. They cost $200 and can be reserved on a first-come, first-served basis. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight. Lows will be around 57 degrees, mostly sunny, warm tomorrow. The high is around 78. Mostly cloudy on Wednesday with a chance of showers or thunderstorms. The high is near 74 degrees. Mostly cloudy again on Thursday. Showers are likely early on. The highs will be around 75. Friday should be sunny, a high of 78. Right now, it's 76 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by EBSCO, working to improve patient outcomes and increase patient engagement with its Clinical Decisions Suite. Learn more at clinicaldecisions.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Two governors in New York and Tennessee signed measures today responding to gun violence in schools and other mass shootings. The measures, though, are starkly different. They reveal how, in the absence of congressional action, states are moving in different directions on gun safety. NPR's Brian Mann joins me. Hey, Brian. Hey, Mayor Louise. Um, Start us off in New York, where Governor Kathy Hochul signed 10 different measures toughening gun laws. What are they? What'd she say? Yeah, so New York is still reeling from the deadly racist violence in Buffalo, where a gunman last month used an AR-15-style rifle to kill 10 grocery shoppers, most of them black residents. So speaking this morning, Hochul said after Buffalo and after the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, it would be morally wrong to do nothing. It just keeps happening. Shots ring out, flags come down, and nothing ever changes, except here in New York. In New York. New York, of course, already had some of the toughest gun laws in the country, Mary Louise. Mm -hmm. Among other things, now these new laws will raise the age to buy an AR-15 style firearm from 18 to 21. It'll ban the sale of body armor to most individuals. And New York's going to ban large magazines, you know, clips of bullets that allow shooters to fire more rounds before reloading. Okay, let's compare that to what's happening in Tennessee, uh, where their governor, Bill Lee, is also signing things. He signed an executive order on school safety. 
Yeah, what's not in the Tennessee measure is any mention of gun control or firearm regulation. So it's a really different approach from New York. Uh, Tennessee's executive order focuses instead on this idea of hardening schools, which is a popular concept in many Republican-controlled states. Now Tennessee agencies will be ordered to give schools more guidance on how to boost school security, also encouraging parents to get more active advocating for safe schools and reporting danger. In a statement today, Governor Lee said his administration is doing its best to protect kids, but he didn't address questions about whether these kinds of measures will actually work. In, in Uvalde, remember, school police were on the scene, but were not effective protecting the students and teachers who were killed. Um, and we said uh, when I introduced you, this is all happening at the state level in the absence of anything happening at the federal level. Has Congress made any progress, any recent moves on gun violence legislation? Well, what we can say is that talks are continuing, led by Republican Senator John Cornyn from Texas and Democratic Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut. Both of their states, of course, scarred horribly by mass shootings at schools. In the past, these kinds of talks have sort of petered out without any new significant action. Always lots of worry and concern after these shootings, but not much in the way of results. And that's largely because of opposition from the GOP side to any significant gun control measures uh, that appears fierce and unbudging. All right. I'll circle us back to New York, where there's a Republican facing a backlash for supporting new gun regulations. And again, this is in a state where gun control is is broadly popular. Right. Representative Chris Jacobs, a Republican who represents a district out near Buffalo, came out in favor of new restrictions, uh, but then he faced this huge backlash. Here's what he said. I made remarks uh, before the press regarding my support of, of some gun control measures. Since that time, every Republican elected official that endorsed me withdrew their endorsement. Additionally, the Republican and conservative parties have now been circulating petitions to launch primaries against me. So facing those headwinds, Jacobs won't run again. This shows how politically dangerous it is, Mary Louise, for Republicans to back almost any gun control measures. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. And Pierre's Brian Mann. And now a look inside the Wagner Group. This private mercenary firm is financed by an oligarch with close ties to Vladimir Putin, although the Russian president has consistently denied any knowledge of the organization. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley sat down with a former Wagner mercenary to learn about the group's activities. Hello, Marat. Hello. Spasiba. 56-year-old Marat Gabidulin's face is lined from exposure to the elements and his hair is thinning, but he has the trim physique and muscular arms of a man 30 years younger. He wears a chunky ring with a skull, the symbol of Wagner. Born in central Russia, Gabidulin served 10 years as an officer in the Soviet army before being laid off. In 2015, he found himself unemployed and at a low point in his life. I was depressed, he says, and a friend told me about this private military company that I could qualify for because of my military background. Gabidulin joined Wagner which came to the world's attention in 2014 when it fought with separatists in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. Today, Wagner's clients range from the junta governing Mali to Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Gabi Doolin served three years in Syria. In Syria, one goal was to quickly achieve the victory, but the second goal that was as important uh, to hide the number of losses that Russian military had in that campaign because we wanted to create an image of a strong Russian military that achieved victory at a small cost. It was all deception, he says, because the cost was huge, but the public will never know the real numbers. 
Kevin Limonier is a Wagner specialist who teaches geopolitics at the University of Paris 8. Wagner is not a group, it's a brand. In fact, it does not exist as an official structure. Wagner is financed by Yevgeny Prigozhin, the same oligarch wanted by the FBI for interfering in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Yevgeny Prigozhin has an empire based on three types of activities. First type of activities is, of course, mercenary and security business. Second type is disinformation business, information warfare, etc. The third is the exploitation of natural resources in Africa. Selon nos informations, 2000 mercenaires russes. A recent documentary about Wagner that aired on Network France 2 shows how these three activities intersect to prop up corrupt regimes, terrorize local populations, and spin lies. Limonier says Wagner is different from private military companies like the notorious Blackwater, now disbanded, because it doesn't have any official existence. It's a galaxy of organizations with different names that are hard to trace, he says and it thrives in a violent post-Soviet society. Wagner is organized by people who grew up in a society where violence and death has not the same value that it has in our Western societies. Limonier says Wagner's earnings have grown tremendously in recent years because of its operations in Africa, <laughs> allowing it to recruit young men from remote Russian regions with rap songs and ultra-violent internet movies and videos glorifying war, which allows it to build a cheap and disposable force. <laughs> Mercenary Gabby Doolin says no one is responsible for a Wagner soldier and there is no code of conduct in a Wagner war. Well, you have to understand that a person who is part of this group exists in this legal vacuum. On the other hand, that soldier is also relieved of any possible consequences of his behavior at war. Gabby Doolin has just published his book in France, I, Marat, ex-commander in the Wagner army. He says he wrote it to show the Russian people the truth and the propaganda behind their wars. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. Scientists have recorded a song made by a volcano. NPR's Jeff Brumfill reports that the tune could tell them more about when an eruption might take a violent turn. There's a big volcano in Hawaii called Kilauea. In 2008, there started an eruptive episode where there was an active lava lake at the summit. That's Leif Karlstrom, a professor of volcanology at the University of Oregon. As the volcano's crater filled with lava, rocks from the wall began falling into it. These are big rock falls, like bus-sized. These giant boulders would plunge into the lava lake several times a week for the next 10 years, and scientists were listening to the splashes they made as they fell. This audio recording is what your ears would have heard, but researchers also used seismographs placed around the crater to record low-frequency vibrations. And when Karlstrom and graduate student Josh Crozier sped up those recordings, it made music. What you're listening to here you know, might sound like, a, like an old field recording of a marimba. Now that's pretty cool, but what's even cooler is that the song actually reveals something important about the makeup of the molten rock deep inside the volcano. Karlstrup says the notes of the song depend on how many bubbles of gas are in the liquid rock. The speed of sound of a bubbly mixture is 
actually very significantly different. You could hear this for yourself in your kitchen with a spoon and a couple of glasses. All right, so I've filled these two glasses to exactly the same level. They have the same amount of water in them, but one of them is still, and the other one is sparkling. So the amount of bubbles in the drink changes the way it sounds. The sounds at Kilauea matter to volcano scientists because they care a lot about bubbles. Bubbles are the primary driver of volcanic eruptions, uh, generally, actually. He hopes the volcano song could be used as a bubble detector to help predict when an eruption has the potential to turn even more violent. There's quite a bit of effort right now in the volcanologic community to develop techniques that might allow us to peer into the plumbing system um, while the event is occurring or, or before it happens so that we can forecast hazards, for example. Carlstrom's work appears in the journal Science Advances. He says this trick may not work all the time. Not every volcano makes music. But Kilauea's song is worth listening to. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. About half a century ago, three of every four members of Congress had served in the U.S. military. Now it's about one in six. Listen tomorrow afternoon to hear how a new and diverse generation of Republican veterans is trying to change that. Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered in Colonial America, abortion would have been considered a fairly common practice. But in the mid-1800s, a small group of physicians set out to change that. In business news, the bidding war to buy Spirit Airlines is taking off. JetBlue, which has a major hub at Logan Airport, is again increasing its offer for the discount airline. JetBlue says it will provide a $350 million payment for Spirit if the deal is not completed for antitrust reasons. That's $150 million more than previously offered. Frontier Airlines is also trying to buy Spirit. On Wall Street today, stocks closed slightly higher. The Dow up 16 points at 32,916. NASDAQ was up four-tenths of a percent, or 49 points, to 12,061. Marketplace will have all the day's business news coming up in about 10 minutes here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, with a place for me, celebrating a new generation of artists creating vibrant, figurative paintings, icaboston.org, and the Arlington Chamber and Mass Office of Travel and Tourism. Enjoy Arlington's cultural district with shopping, dining, theaters, and more. Details at visitarlingtonma.org. Join us Wednesday, June 15th at WBUR City Space for a celebration of cephalopods. Hear from marine experts, watch science videos, and meet a real-life octopus. You can get tickets for this Science Friday event at wbur.org events.
WBUR supporters include Russell's Garden Center, a shopping experience with annuals, perennials, organic fertilizers, unique gifts, toys, and more. A spring tradition for 146 years. Route 20 Wayland. Freight Farms. With a mission of moving farms, not food, Freight Farms helps you to grow food year-round with their modular hydroponic farm. Learn more at FreightFarms.com. And Tanglewood, presenting the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Boston Pops, guest artists, and more in the Berkshire Hills this summer. Details and performance schedule at tanglewood.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. In U.S. history, abortion wasn't always controversial. In fact, in colonial America, it was considered a fairly common practice, a private decision made by women and aided mostly by midwives. But in the mid-1800s, a small group of physicians set out to change that. Led by a zealous young doctor named Horatio Storer, they launched a campaign to make abortion illegal in every state. Hosts Ramtin Arablouei and Rumd Abdel Fattah from our history podcast, Throughline, bring us this story. In 1860, governors of every single state in the U.S. received this letter from the recently established American Medical Association. The evil to society of this crime is evident from the fact that its instances in this country are now to be counted by hundreds of thousands. But there was really only one guy holding the pen. Horatio Storer. Carissa Haugeberg is an associate professor of history at Tulane University. She studied the formation of the anti-abortion movement. Basically, he ghost wrote a letter from the president of the AMA. So it looked like it was coming from the president, but Storer was actually the one who wrote it, saying that the AMA opposes abortion, and he used the language of morality. The letter was pivotal to what historians call the physician's crusade against abortion. And Storer was making a few key arguments for why abortion should be illegal across the country. First, he introduced a new idea. The child is alive from the moment of conception. That life began at conception. Up till now, people generally agreed that life began when a woman could actually feel life move inside her, known then as quickening. But that wasn't enough for Storer. He campaigned on a moral argument that also tapped into the racial fears of the moment. Fears that would eventually inspire a pseudo-scientific field of, quote, racial improvement and planned breeding of the population. American eugenics. These racial fears would inspire forced sterilization programs to decrease certain populations, whereas Storer's anti-abortion campaign was trying to increase other populations by focusing on... The birth rate for Protestant white women had been declining over the course of the 19th century. So he had fears of what were commonly what was commonly referred to as race suicide, that the Anglo stock wasn't going to replenish itself fast enough to keep up with the swells of new immigrants to the United States. And who is going to have power and populate this country and populate the Great Plains and the Great West? Leslie Regan is a professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Well, it is going to be Chinese migrants is going to be African-Americans, newly freed people, and Catholics. They are not the ones using abortion. It's our, <laughs> you know, Yankee women who are using abortion, trying to get into medical school, trying to do politics, and they should be at home having babies and taking care of them. 
Michelle Goodwin is a professor at the University of California, Irvine, in the areas of law and bioethics. They began to say we need white women to use their loins because they're concerned about the blackening and the browning of what is now, what at that point became the United States. And this real concern that when black people become free, what will this mean for white people? And white women become a key to that. So part of Storr's thinking was that criminalizing abortion would help rebalance the scales of who was being born into this country. But there was more to this strategy. He saw this as a way to finally knock out the competition. Midwives. And so if the AMA could wrest control over the marketplace of abortion, it would it would be lucrative to this growing cadre of university-educated, mostly male um, physicians who were beginning to specialize in things like obstetrics and gynecology. So midwives were slandered in this campaign. Described as unsanitary, unclean, as unmoral. And as clueless as the mothers themselves. Saying women do not know. They don't know when they quicken. And really makes fun of women's own sensations and knowledges and says, you know, some of them quicken at one month, some of them never quicken at all, and then they have a baby. They may very constantly be recognized by the physician in cases where no sensation is felt by the mother. So there's this scoffing at women's knowledge, saying, this is a sin, this is murder, you're killing children. By the moral law, the willful killing of a human being at any stage of its existence is murder. And the general public and women don't get it. They don't know that. And we need to change the laws. So to help people get it, Storer wrote articles, books, reports, speeches, all to make his views on abortion and women clear. In one lecture called The Origins of Insanity in Women, he advocated for ovariectomies for women who, quote, have become habitually thievish, profane or obscene, despondent or self-indulgent, shrewish or fatuous. The solution, as he saw it, remove the cause. A woman's reproductive organs. He was really hostile to women. And that hostility was starting to gain traction. A few years into the campaign, some states began to pass laws outlawing or restricting abortion. Perhaps the harshest was in Connecticut in 1860. The law got rid of the quickening rule and made abortion a crime for which the abortionist and the woman getting the abortion could be fined and jailed. And over the next few decades, most states across the country would adopt similar laws, thanks in part to another campaign that was going on at the same time that was getting even more attention. It was led by a Union Army Civil War veteran named Anthony Comstock, who's well known for leading the anti-birth control crusade of the 19th century. Anthony Comstock was a descendant of some of the earliest Puritans in New England. He took that ancestry to heart and went on to work with the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA, in New York City, and founded the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. And he dedicated his life to exactly that, suppressing vice. In 1873, Comstock began lobbying Congress to pass anti-obscenity laws. There had been a rise of prostitution and new forms of birth control, like diaphragms and rubber condoms, all of which triggered a powerful backlash, a backlash that culminated in the Comstock Law. 
The law made it illegal to mail sex toys, pornography, contraception, abortion drugs, or even information about contraception and abortion. Including some medical books that had pictures of anatomy, right? It's just how deep it went. But here's the thing. Comstock conflated birth control with abortion. He saw no difference between the two, which meant that abortion was wrapped up into this new law, making it a federal offense to send or order material about abortion by mail, with punishment of up to $5,000 in fines, which is over $110,000 today, and up to 10 years in prison. The law was the first of its kind in the Western world. Between Comstock's laws and Horatio Storr's crusade, by 1880, every single state had a law outlawing abortion on the books. These laws launched a century of criminalization. That was Rund Abdel-Fattah and Ramtin Arablouei of NPR's Throughline podcast. The full episode is Before Roe, the Physician's Crusade. And this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Stocks closed up slightly today. Marketplace will have all the business news coming up next at 6.30 here on WBUR. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight. Lows around 57 degrees, mostly sunny. Warm tomorrow, a high of 78. Mostly cloudy on Wednesday with a chance of showers or thunderstorms. The highs will be near 74. Right now it's 75 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hills School for the Arts, championing creativity, arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23, walnuthillarts.org. Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. And Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and building socially responsible investment portfolios for 25 years. Zevin.com slash WBUR.